Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. On this week's episode of the podcast, we talk about Dark Side Hacking Group and their shutdown of the Colonial Pipeline. We talk about PlayStation 5 and the future of VR. We talk about Xiaomi now being off the U.S. ban list. And we talk about what to expect from Google I.O. 2021. Okay, on to topic number one. In the past couple of weeks, there was a ransomware attack that was pulled out by a group called Darkside, a hacking group slash hacking gang. Now, what they did is they used a ransomware attack and they targeted one of the U.S.'s biggest fuel pipeline operators and the entire network network was shut down Friday. That was Friday the 7th of May. Now, Colonial Pipeline is the largest pipeline carrying fuel from the Gulf Coast to the northeastern United States. They transport around 2.5 million barrels of gasoline, diesel fuel, heating oil, and jet fuel, and they carry nearly half of the East Coast fuel supply. Now, they were hit by a cyber attack, and it was an attack on their information technology or business network system, and they decided to halt all pipeline operations the night of Friday. And they said they did this to proactively, you know, take certain systems offline to contain the threat. Now, I'm sure you've heard of this sort of, this hack, this ransomware attack. What do you, uh, what do you think of it? Yeah, so I, I heard a little bit of it. I believe we, um, not on the podcast, but a little bit last week, we, we spoke a little bit about it. And the kind of situation just seemed to grow uh, from there. And yeah, it was essentially this, this group uh, known as Darkside, uh, which implemented a ransomware style attack on the Colonial Pipeline Company which it's strange because this kind of situation kind of brought so much more attention to ransomware in general. And I don't think that that was Darkseid's mission. I don't think that's what they wanted to happen. And I think that's that's one of the things that that make this this story a little bit more interesting because from the story, I learned a few things. Like I was uh, reading through a CBC article and uh, a CBC radio interview with um with some experts uh one named Kim Zetter and she was explaining how these types of things work and how this situation works and it's and essentially you know dark side takes the credit for this hack but they're not the ones that actually uh that actually do the hacks essentially what they are is they are ransomware as a service which essentially what they do is they advertise the fact that they have this ransomware and they take anywhere, you know, depending on the company that you go with, but they can take anywhere from 10 to 25% of what you get from that ransomware attack and they provide you the software to do it. So let's say, for example, you want to, in this situation, someone or a group wants to target the Colonial Pipeline, um, they then search for these ransomware as a service companies that will provide them the software to do so 
and they will get the majority of the the revenue that they get from that attack and then the company like Darkside that provides the ransomware gets a small cut from that and essentially they run it like a business they run it like okay we provide you a service of ransomware attacks you get to use our our software we get a cut you get the bulk share and there's apparently bidding wars that happen where you know certain companies will try to undercut other companies for the ransomware that they build and it's just really interesting because that's something i didn't know i didn't know that that's how this kind of this kind of situation can work i always thought that the company that made the ransomware was the ones that were doing the attack i've never heard of ransomware as a service prior to this and i think that that could have been a little bit of a a backfiring in this situation of this became very 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 big news and i think one of the main reasons to that is this seemed almost like a countrywide cyber attack where the united states you know the fbi got involved the president spoke about it like this seemed like a, a situation that garnered far more attention than usually these ransomware attacks would get and i think it's more attention that they would want to get because you know one of the things that dark side did when this whole situation happened is they kind of did a little bit of pr which is strange to think that this is essentially illegal activity this is hacking and stuff like that but because they see themselves as a business they also want to you know see them want other people to see them as a beneficial business so they they kind of play themselves off as like a robin hood type character where they specifically said they will not attack governments and they won't attack you know infrastructure and stuff like that which kind of is contrary to what actually happened like like you mentioned this pipeline provides a lot of resources to the eastern us um a huge portion up to 45% and that can be taken as a direct attack on united states infrastructure which you know i think was kind of like a an unknown side effect of what the situation was going to be and then soon after you know reports that uh colonial pipeline settled with this ransomware for approximately five million dollars dark side announced that they were shutting down and you know it's it's all these kind of things where I, i feel like this is them trying to diffuse the situation of not getting as much attention on themselves as as maybe they they've gotten because that's not what they want they want to be able to operate behind the shadows um for the most part make this software so people can pay them to use it and then just continue to garner money that way. I don't think they want to be the the big bad of, you know, a target of the US government or, you know, any kind of government around the world. And I think this is their way of kind of staving that off. Maybe they they go through a brand change, they change their name and maybe you see the software show up um under a different name in the future. But yeah, no, this has been really really interesting and definitely brought to light the reality of how these ransomware attacks work um throughout the world which which is pretty nuts yeah it is uh this whole ransomware as a service is a pretty interesting business model you know like you said they don't actually execute the attacks themselves they just they create the ransomware they create the software and then they sell it to people right now it's it's pretty interesting like you said because they re- they released a press briefing almost 
right? A little bit of damage control. They have a code of conduct where they say things like, you know, like you said, they're not going to attack certain organizations, you know, no hospitals, no hospices, no schools, no universities, no non-for-profit organizations. But it was, even though I guess this colonial pipeline didn't fall under their protected organizations, it did still affect a lot of the U.S., right? Pretty much the entire eastern seaboard. Now, one interesting thing, right? You mentioned they paid $5 million in ransom. This was done apparently within hours of the attack. So they were shut down, I think, for five days. It wasn't like, okay, five days, you know, colonial is, is uh, debating with themselves. Do we pay the ransom or not? Do we try and find a way around this? It was no. It happened within hours. They paid the $5 million. The reason why it took so long to get things running again is the hacker's decryption tool is actually so slow that it took multiple days to get things running again on Colonial's end, right? So it's kind of, I'm sure in an ideal world for them, it would be kind of, okay, we sell someone the tool, they hack whoever, the ransom is paid, the things are decrypted, and no one is the wiser. Right. The only people that really know it are the company. We get our money. No one's affected. But it's kind of it's an unfortunate side effect that their tool took so long, which kind of gave them more media attention. Probably unwanted, like you said. Right. Probably if this if they paid within hours, everything was working within hours and there probably wouldn't be any attention on them. It wouldn't be the spotlight. But because the decryption took so long, that's kind of what what caused them to get all this attention. Now, what's interesting about how they choose to extort people is they do something called a double extortion, where they take files from, let's say, a company's server, and they encrypt them and, and lock, lock up their data. So what happens is, you know, Colonial Pipeline can't even access their own computers because everything on them is, is encrypted, and they need the decryption tool from, let's say, dark side in order to access their own files on their computer. They also steal data from said computer. So the first part of the extortion is, you know, encrypting your, your entire software. The second part is stealing data and then threatening to make that public, which is why people pay so quickly, right? Which is why within hours people will pay. Now, you know, some information from them, typically ransoms, go from 200,000 to 20 million, like you said, you know, dependent on the size of the company or the corporation that's being targeted, right? And they will actually, you know, they will do their re the reconnaissance on people. They'll look up, okay, who are we attacking? What is the size of this company? What effect will this have? And who are the key decision makers inside this company, inside this firm? So they know exactly who to target and how and who to sort of, you know, find a backdoor into the system, through. which, you know, I think the last episode we were kind of talking about, OK, you know, this 14 year old kid that would trash Instagram on people's phone. Right. And the in the previous year, we were talking about this 14 year old kid that had this huge Bitcoin scam and was able to hack into, you know, Joe Biden before he was president and Bill Gates and all these, you know, high level CEOs. 
And we've all, you know, we've kind of said before that, hey, you know, there's a big problem with cybersecurity going on when you have like literal kids hacking into these multi-million dollar, you know, organizations or even multi-billion dollar organizations, mm-hmm. right? If you have kids doing this, imagine a dedicated team of grown or not even grown adults, just experienced people, right? Maybe a dedicated team of people outside of their teenage years who are focused on actually causing some trouble. And this is kind of something we said before when we were talking about the original Twitter hack, right? This kid kind of just stumbled his way into this, you know, these Twitter accounts. Imagine if someone set out with the purpose of, okay, we're going to cause some actual trouble, some actual damage, some actual money. And that's where you get a group like Darkseid from. Yeah. Right. And not to mention, right, we've we've kind of been talking about how things are moving more and more digital. Work is becoming more and more digital. School is becoming more and more digital. Everything is moving digitally. That kind of just opens us up for more digital attacks. Right. So it's kind of, yes, in a way, it's probably not. Well, it's not the publicity that Darkseid wanted for their, you know, their illegal hacking ring. But it's kind of. Anything digital is kind of getting more attention now just because so much of our lives is is in a digital space. Yeah. So it's kind of like if we are moving that way, it's only kind of natural that, hey, you know, we need to pay more attention to how secure we are online. And I think it's going to be an interesting thing when governments start to take more interest in, in, in these kinds of topics because... I think that's the exact opposite of what these ransomware companies want. They don't want government attention. And it seems like this situation might be the tip of the iceberg of kind of a war on on ransomware attacks and, you know, potentially even like this situation was pretty quickly resolved, but you know, this could like we said could have been considered an attack on US infrastructure. At what point does that now become a real fear? Um, for countries to say, okay, now something needs to be done um, about this more than we've done in the past. So maybe like, um, you know, FBI, CIA, NSA, like all these government organizations put it pooling resources together to kind of go after a lot of the forums and the places where a lot of these ransomwares, ransomware products would be kind of fenced and, and advertised. Um, does now... Does that now become a more, you know, difficult place to get, you know, for a company like Darkside and, and all these other companies to get their their products out there to consumers um, when they kind of have to be wary of who they're actually garnering attention from, which they probably didn't need to in the past. Yeah. I mean, if they really want to get their, their product out, they should definitely have a keynote speech at CES this year. <laughs> um something that actually might have a keynote speech at CES is PlayStation 5 and VR. Now, there have been some more specs, you know, some more details about the upcoming PlayStation VR console or system upgrade that's supposed to be coming out at some point in the semi-near future, you know, significantly higher resolution than the previous system, a resolution of 4,000 by 2040. And... It's actually going to be 2000 to 2040 per eye, but, you know, you can buy the two. Uh, there's supposed to be a motor in the headset 
for direct haptic feedback. They're supposed to be inside out tracking uh, and even foveated rendering, right? They're supposed to be eye tracking that can dramatically change the sense of social connection made in in AR and VR games. I know there's, there seems to be a lot of interest in technology around this upcoming PlayStation VR system. Does this make you more excited for the VR future or do you think it's, you know, too good to be true? Um, I definitely don't think it's too good to be true. I, I think, you know, Sony isn't the only one announcing big advancements in VR. I think HTC recently talked about they're going to have a couple of new headsets coming out. And they've talked about how they've completely got rid of the screen door effect, which is, you know, a lot of times these displays are so close to your eyes that it can look like when you're looking at the screens, it looks like there could be like a screen door in front of you between you and the actual content or the display on the screen because they're so close to your eye. And generally the resolution of those screens is low. So what you're talking about with like the, the new PSVR headsets having much higher resolution displays and stuff like that, um, HTC is doing is doing as well um, to an even higher extent. Now, obviously, HTC and and Vive and 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 Valve, what they're doing with the Valve Index, generally these are more premium uh, VR headsets, and they're going to be very expensive. Uh, I would imagine that that PlayStation is going to stick more towards the budget end of VR, um, which you know I'm, I imagine by time this comes out. That they will be able to, they'll probably be able to reach a similar price point to the original PSVR. But yeah, no, I definitely think it's it's something that they can hit. I I, I know from what I've heard about the DualShock, or sorry, the DualSense, <laughs> the DualSense <laughs> controller. That you know that feedback is, I mean, it, it's hit and miss. Some people love it, some people don't. But for the people who do like it, you know, it's it's a really big difference that brings that's brought to the PlayStation kind of ecosystem and i would imagine that if you're doing vr having similar types of senses being triggered while you're gaming it would be huge for for that immersion factor and then also being on brand for what playstation has done so far so yeah i definitely think it's something that they can pull off uh, hardware wise that being said vr for me is still not something that that that's kind of hit me or, or i have much interest in um, I've used it very, very briefly with a Oculus Quest, um, which is really cool. It's a really cool device, all inclusive. You don't have to connect it to anything. It's just, you know, a standalone headset and you can play games and stuff like that on it. But for me, it's still not at the point where I'm like, I really, really want VR. And I don't know what it is. I don't know why it's not, it hasn't clicked for me, but yeah, for some reason it hasn't. Um, so who knows, maybe the next version of the PSVR will do that, or maybe the next uh, HTC Vive, we'll see. But um, but how about you? Do you feel like, like PlayStation VR and, and the PlayStation 5 can get you into VR? Are you excited about what could be coming up with it in the future? I'm definitely excited. Definitely looking forward to seeing what comes from it in the future. Um, I mean, really, since we saw those new controllers, right, those updated controllers, it has had me really interested. I guess my only hang up really is it's as far as I know, it's still supposed to be a wired system, mm-hmm. right? They haven't, there haven't been any announcements or anything indicating that it's going to be a completely wireless VR system. And that's one kind of thing that, you know, a slight hang up, like whether it's wired or not, I'm still interested in it, but 
it's just, I guess, that next level of immersion, right? You, you spoke about the screen door effect. I imagine you're looking around, you're moving around, and you're constantly worried about this wire pulling on the back of your head, on the back of the, the system. That's the only, I guess, hang up for me, really. I haven't used a VR system. I haven't used a PlayStation VR. I haven't used Oculus. I haven't used Vive. Um, I may use one of the current PlayStation VRs before this second one comes out. Probably not. This new PlayStation VR will probably be like my first, I guess, entrance into the VR market. Um, But yeah, I am worried about kind of that immersion factor. And am I going to be sitting there thinking, oh, man, this is this is real life. Or is it going to be, oh, yeah, this looks cool for VR, right? Am I going to be able to get past that barrier of knowing that I'm playing a VR game? But there's a lot of interesting things, like like you mentioned, the haptics in the controller. You know, like I just mentioned, the haptics in the headset. That's a different kind of immersion that can kind of help pull you into the game. I'm interested to see how they how they choose to use haptics in a headset, right? Like how... How strong is this vibration motor going to be? Are you going to be playing, you know, like a boxing game and the motor concusses you in real life when your player on screen gets a concussion? <laughs> like, it'll be interesting to see how they choose to use it, but I'm definitely looking forward to this next PSVR system. Like, I can say that, at least. Yeah, well, okay, so that actually brings up a really good point because... Yeah, there are definite definite barriers for PSVR, for or just not PSVR, but VR in general, from you know the price of the units to space to be able to move around and act out the actions. But I think one of the big ones right now is how real the experience is, uh, especially with the fact that, like you mentioned, PSVR and all VR, there's two separate screens that are right in front of your eyes. And it's almost like how 3D used to be back in the day, where you're essentially rendering something twice. And it, in a lot of cases, can take double the horsepower to do so, which has been a huge kind of hit to the visual fidelity of VR games. And I think that's probably going to be the last barrier of getting VR to look good enough that it can feel real. And I think that's where probably VR is not hitting me because I have never been the type of person who's gravitated to games that look realistic or look very good. Like uh, I remember back when The Last of Us came out or even Uncharted games, like these were all visually great games for their time um, that were centered around these amazing stories. But the visuals are what took the the front page of, of what those games were, of those experiences. And that's kind of been the thing. Like we talked about, I remember earlier in the podcast, the uh, reaction to Halo Infinite. And a lot of people were really upset by the way it looked, but that game was targeting high frame rates and high resolution as opposed to like great textures and stuff like that. And for me, that's more has always been more interesting than something looking super realistic. And I think that's going to be a huge like uh, differentiation between the people who really gravitate towards VR or the people who are looking for, for realism as opposed to the people who, who probably aren't super into that and maybe like more arcadey experiences like, or maybe grew up with like Pac-Man and stuff like that in the arcades who, you know, probably aren't obsessed with how things look in the game and more about how they play. 
And I think that's going to be a huge differentiating factor of like VR games are going to look better than they play. And I mean, that, that's a question for you. Do you kind of have a preference for one or the other? Do you want games to be more realistic or are you more about the experience of how, you know, something might be fun or play uh, depending on like what kind of, what kind of uh, situation you prefer in a game? I would say typically it's more about the gameplay mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, typically it's more about the gameplay and the experience, experience of playing rather than, you know, the textures and all that. But for something like VR, and like I said, I haven't played a PlayStation VR or any VR system before, but for something like VR, I I feel like I would want it to be as realistic as possible. Mm-hmm. Not to say that I want to sacrifice, you know, the gameplay, but for something like that, right, the entire thing, like you, like it's called virtual reality. I want to believe that whatever I'm seeing, whatever I'm playing is reality and doing so. I don't want it to be just, you know, another video game, but now it's closer to my eyes than the TV that I normally play on. Right? Yeah. If it's if it's something like that, then I'll just play on a TV. I'm completely fine playing video games on a TV. You know, I'm not I'm not wishing. Oh man, I wish this was like right on my eyeballs. It's if I'm gonna be playing VR, then it has to it has to look realistic. It has to look like reality, as opposed to like I'm not gonna play Genshin Impact on a PSVR, right? I'm not gonna play. Breath of the Wild on a VR, if if that was a possibility. So I I guess yeah. To answer your question, for just regular gameplay, I would say it's all about mechanics. It's all about the actual gameplay. For virtual reality, I would say I I would like something that looks realistic as as realistic as possible. Yeah, I, I definitely don't think you're alone on that either. I think and that's going to be I think something that PlayStation is going to have to prove that, hey, the power of the PlayStation 5 can be used to make realistic-looking experiences. And maybe not, like we've talked about so many times, maybe not just games, maybe experiences in general that, you know, they're able to capitalize on that really no one else can, which kind of be exciting to see if that comes out in maybe 2022 or 2023. And kind of like speaking on experiences, right, that no one else can, a little bit of just numbers behind the PlayStation 5, right? It's, we're about six months from the launch. It launched in November of 2020. And so far it has sold 7.8 million units in this first six months, which makes it the biggest console launch in US history for both number of units sold and the amount of money they've made. And all that is also in spite of, okay, there have been vast shortages to the amounts of consoles that people could buy. So kind of, you know, imagine how successful this launch would be if they had enough units to supply to everyone that actually wanted to buy them. And, you know, that's kind of a result of, you know, the global semiconductor shortage that's going on. They're just not able to produce enough units. And then also these consoles were released in a lockdown which meant that everyone had to do online-only shopping. You know, you couldn't just walk into a store and pick up a PlayStation 5. Mm-hmm. And 
this online only shopping kind of made it easier for, you know, people who use bots to buy things and people who, you know, look to use predatory tactics to resell things. But despite all that, it's still the most successful launch in U.S. history. Right. And if you compare, like, let's say the PlayStation 5 to the PlayStation 4, because there's a lot of consoles that come out. And the reason they sell is because, you know, Breath of the Wild or not even not so much Breath of the Wild. There's a lot of consoles that come out and it's you need to buy this console to play this brand new game. This brand new game is only available on this brand new console. But a lot of the launch titles for PlayStation 5 were cross-platform. And even then, it was, you could play them on PS4, you can play them on PS5. Like one of the big ones, right, Spider-Man Miles Morales, you could still play it on PS4. But the PS5 and, like, the hardware of the console made it that much better of a game. Whether it be, you know, the extremely, actually fast, fast travel within the game. Or even, like, the ray tracing that was made possible from the console. So it's kind of... It seems like there's enough power in the PlayStation to make realistic looking games, especially coming from the past PlayStation VR, right? It seems like there's enough hardware to make them even more realistic than we've seen before. But is it going to be enough is, I guess, the real question. Yeah. Uh, Third topic. Recently, it was announced that Xiaomi will be taken off the U.S. government's blacklist for companies that can't be worked with. The U.S. Defense Department, while under President Trump, designated that the Xiaomi Corporation was having ties with Chinese military and placed it under a list that would, you know, restrict U.S. investments and companies from working with Xiaomi. There were also seven other Chinese companies that were placed on this uh, restricted cooperation list. And when they were placed on this you know, quote unquote, blacklist, Xiaomi went on the offensive and actually filed a lawsuit against the U.S. government, kind of saying that, hey, we there's no reason to believe that we are under the influence or are working with the Chinese military. This is completely unfair. There's no evidence behind this. And back in March, actually, a federal judge blocked the enforcement of this blacklist in saying, uh, saying that the U.S. government's deeply flawed process for including it in the ban wasn't just. So now with a new administration in place, they have overturned the blacklisting that was being done to Xiaomi. So now they're allowed to sell phones in the U.S. like officially, you no, know, with the asterisk. They're allowed to sell products in the U.S. So it's kind of, it opens up the market for competition, which we always speak of right we're always happy to see more competition in the consumer market so i guess my question to you is how do you think this will influence the market right now and in the future do you see more companies like maybe huawei being allowed back into the u.s unfortunately as someone who really liked uh huawei devices specifically honor which is no longer owned by huawei anymore they sold it off but i think the days for huawei are are pretty much done um and if they ever do come back it won't be i don't think it will be the huawei we remember uh and with xiaomi i it's like you said it's all about competition and without companies like huawei and xiaomi 
you know, the past year or so, um, or at least the more diminished presence of them, has definitely hurt Android, in my opinion. It's definitely crippled the, the level of choice where before there used to be all these devices from budget makers that you used to be able to get your hands on, um, especially in the more like mid-range market. There's, there's always been a lot of choice in the low end and the high end, but the mid-range was something that was, was severely lacking. Um, and Xiaomi, Huawei, and, and Honor, Honor uh, definitely filled that, that, that void. And ever since you know the, these bans kind of happened, there's been a lot of a lot of a big gap for people like me who like the the you know three hundred to five hundred dollar phone, and it's been a lot of people now saying, well, if I can't get that device, either I go for something that's two to three hundred dollars, like a Moto G or something like that, um, which you know, yeah, you can you can live with it, but you're gonna have to make some sacrifices, or you end up spending twelve to fourteen hundred dollars on a Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra, or you move over to iPhone. And and we've kind of seen this this happen. Like, this was one of the biggest years for migration from Android to iOS and to iPhones. And it's not just because Apple made some fantastic phones, um, especially with the base iPhone 12, which was great compared to, you know, the, the iPhone 11 and, and the iPhone 10R from the year before it definitely was more in line with the flagship phones but also the fact that there just wasn't as much option as there used to have been um and i hope that that xiaomi gets the ability to come back in full force and, and kind of fill that mid-range kind of level what i do think is going to happen though is i don't think xiaomi especially in the north american market and the u.s market are going to go back to mid-range phones i think it's going to be a situation where they're going to stick with flagship they're going to go on a similar trajectory that OnePlus did where, you know, they started out as, as budget mid-range phones and then, you know, got more and more expensive over time. And I think Xiaomi with the Mi 11 um, has kind of proven the fact that they can make a flagship phone. And I think they're going to want to continue to be in that section of, of phones, especially in the U.S., maybe get with a carrier because, you know, getting removed off this ban list also gives them the ability to work with U.S. companies, so maybe working with a, car a carrier like AT&T or T-Mobile so that you can get subsidized phones in Americans' hands, which would be a huge win for Xiaomi. Um, but it would also mean they can keep the price high and get much better margins on their products like what Apple has with theirs. You know, Apple has these tremendous margins for their iPhones where they can make a ton of money off of these products. And I think that's what a lot of these companies want to do. Xiaomi does not want to make a phone where they're making a very slim margin and they have to sell millions and millions of them to make any kind of profit. They would rather sell phones that have a huge margin, maybe can get some sort of subsidy and, you know, kind of build their brand recognition that way as making fantastic products as opposed to just budget products. I definitely, I definitely see them sticking with the flagship route. And, you know, you brought up a good point with OnePlus because that's that's kind of what companies want to do, right? Even even if at some point maybe they go back to the mid-range or to the budget option like OnePlus has with their whole Nord line, it's all the money is in flagship. I mean, because they cost so much. But in terms of, you know, the success of your company, it's kind of you need a big flagship device 
to kind of sell sell your brand in, right? To sell the idea of a Xiaomi phone. And you, you brought up a good point also about them getting into into carriers, right? Being subsidized phones through carriers. Because a lot of times when people get phones, and especially when they get it through their carriers, because most people aren't buying phones outright. You know, most people aren't spending a thousand plus dollars on a phone outright. But when you say, hey, you know, we have a back to school special, you know, get you this phone for zero dollars down, just, you know, an extra fifty dollars a month, but zero dollars down. People like that and they can get a better phone than they normally would get because, hey, you know, my carrier is offering it to me at a discounted rate. So if they are able to get, you know, in good talks with, you know, the AT&T's, the T-Mobile's, the Bell, the Rogers, it gets their brand recognition out there too, right? When you have, right now, when, when you think of Android, most people think of Samsung. That's just it, right? It, in fact, Samsung's phones are probably even more popular, if not, you know, just as popular as the Google Pixel phones and Google makes Android, which is kind of crazy. The fact that Xiaomi could be another player in that and, you know, kind of take some of the market share away from Samsung or even take some of the market share away from from iPhone, mm-hmm. that could be a pretty big deal. But like you said, it's probably going to be, okay, the flagship route, and then it's probably going to be the subsidized by a carrier route. And I'm I'm looking forward to see what that looks like, right? How far they look to push that flagship envelope especially if they know that they're going to be okay partnering with service providers because then you can make your phone you know one thousand twelve hundred maybe even fourteen hundred dollars if you know that the person is going to be getting this phone for zero dollars down but they're just going to be paying for it month by month and then you can kind of push that envelope of of specs and performance and you know 120 hertz screen 100 megapixels you know uh 100 exude i think they go flagship push the price carrier that is a recipe to grow their sort of brand especially in north america yeah and uh, you know we'll talk about google in, in a minute but i think this is going to be a kind of downside for google and android of filling that that mid-range market because like i mentioned a bunch of people switching over from android to ios and a huge reason for that is the iPhone SE, which is a great phone that there's really, you know, that was a a, a place that Android was great at. The mid-range phone was a place where Android was just killing it. They were fantastic from all these different manufacturers, some whose, whose name you knew, like Samsung, and some who you've never heard of before, like Honor. Um, but that doesn't exist right now, um, especially not to that level. And it's going to be very, very difficult for, you know, Google to entice these companies to make phones like that because they don't have the supply chain that Apple does where they can say, we can take a phone that, that has, you know, the majority of its, of its parts are stuff that we developed close to six years ago and, you know, market it in a way where it can be a flagship phone. Again, if you took an Android phone from six years ago or a design, from five years ago or even four years ago and said, this is going to be the new mid-range phone, chances are people wouldn't buy it, um, just regardless of what kind of processor you put in it. So yeah, I think this is a situation where 
Google, hopefully, you know, there's, I could pray that one day we get a return to Nexus, but I don't think that will ever happen. <laughs> but something along those lines where, you know, Google really helped Huawei build their brand with the Nexus 6P, maybe they can do that with, maybe not Xiaomi, because Xiaomi's on another trajectory, but maybe a new company from, from China or, you know, Europe or Africa or somewhere around the world of a new startup that wants to get you know, into the hands of people and start out as a mid-range device or a budget device. I think that could definitely, that's definitely something that Android needs, I think, going forward. Definitely. Um, well, speaking of Google, this week coming up from May 18th to the 20th is the Google IOS. It's sort of like their big developer conference where they usually talk about the next version of Android to come out and any new products that are coming out. Now, this past week, uh, prominent leaker John Prosser had some renders and images of the Google Pixel 6 that he was kind of showing off. He usually sticks to Apple leaks. I guess he has some people on the inside working on Pixel phones also. And he showed off the Google Pixel 6 and the Pixel 6 Pro, which is what apparently they're going with. No more, you know, XL name tag. It looks like a very premium device. I'm not sure if you were able to see any of the video or any of the images of it, but it looks like a a more premium high-end device. And it kind of caught me off guard, especially because last year with the Pixel 4a and then the Pixel 5 and the 4a XL, right? Google was specifically going for mid-range. They weren't going for ultra premium they weren't going for low end it was a very mid-range modest phone but a nice looking phone and a nicely operated phone and once again this hasn't been confirmed by google we don't even know what the pricing is going to be it could be the exact same price as the you know the 4a and the 5 for this next generation of phones they just decided to make it look more premium but if it is something more premium, if it is something more expensive, then that kind of just leaves even more of a void that Xiaomi isn't filling, that OnePlus isn't filling, that Huawei can't fill in North America. So I guess, did you get a chance to take a look at the, the leaks of the Pixel 6 and 6 Pro? And I guess, kind of what do you, what do you feel about the design and what do you think it means for the mid-range market? Yeah, um, so I definitely saw it, and my first kind of reaction to it was, oh, no. Um, <laughs> but I have to say, I do really like the design. I don't know how practical it is. Um, there's a huge camera bump on the back of the phone, and you know, I could imagine when the phone is sitting flat on the table in landscape mode, it would rock back and forth because it's kind of curved. The camera bump has a curve to it. Um, kind of reminiscent to the Nexus 6P that I mentioned earlier, um, but just a little bit further down on the phone, the the bump is. But yeah, I, I really like the design. I agree with you. It's a much more premium design um, when compared to the Pixel 4a and the Pixel 5. But yeah, I think you're right. I think this is a situation where Google is going away from the mid-range uh, phones and, and into the premium. Like, like you said, that's pure speculation based on the design, but the design does give off that impression, and that just you know makes the the void of, of mid range phones even you know more apparent. But I I I'm not surprised that Google would be doing that. 
going into like the the topic of, of what my expect expectations of Google I/O is or for Google I/O, I don't expect to see these phones there. Uh, I also don't expect to see the Pixel Watch there. Um, and what about the Pixel Buds A. I, I honestly don't even expect to see that there. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised. Google has said that that phone is not canceled. I think they need to cancel it at that point because if you know, it looks like these leaks of of the new Pixel Six are true. That doesn't meld with that whole design philosophy or the pricing philosophy. Like, if you're going to do a, a new budget phone, it wouldn't make sense for a device that looks like a Pixel Five that is budget and has the same name as a device like the Pixel Six. Like, there's no, they don't meld in any which way. Which is by the way, we're talking about the Pixel Five A, right? Because yes. it's a, it's they've confirmed the Pixel Five A is coming. We just don't know when yet, but we're saying probably not Google I.O. Yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah. And th- this is the thing. Like, they say it's coming. I mean, I-, I guess we have to take them at their word. I, I just wouldn't imagine why they would do that. And if they did, like I said, I, I could picture this going to a very limited run kind of device where they put it out. Maybe there's only a few um, that, that you can get your hands on. And, and Google's no stranger to that they've done this many times in the past with a lot of their products like the the chromebooks and the the nexus 9 and stuff like that very limited run products um that they abandon very quickly but this goes back to my my earlier point the reason why i do not i'm not surprised by the the possible change of direction for the pixel line of going from super premium to very mid-range to super premium again is because Google is no stranger to changing their mind from one minute to the next. And it's one of my biggest problems with uh, not just Android in general, but with Google I.O. And and why, you know, I've, I've, we've mentioned in the podcast, we joked about how CES has been like my second Christmas and I love CES. I don't feel the same way about Google I.O. because a lot of things that show up in Google I.O. is, hey, you know this feature that you really loved in old versions of Android? Well, we got rid of it and we brought in a new feature or we changed it to work completely differently. And, you know, Google is no stranger to doing that and just changing things. And I, I understand that's that's a big part of their their company. They like new ideas. But as a user, to me, that's not necessarily the most intuitive thing. Like I've always talked about, you know, everyone, a lot of uh, tech YouTubers and stuff like that rave about stock Android and how great it is. For someone who's used the Nexus device for years back in the day, for me that was frustrating because every time a new version of Android would come out, it would operate completely differently from the last. Whereas something like Samsung's phones, especially more recently with One UI, it's very cohesive. Like I have a Samsung tablet, a Samsung phone. I don't actually have one, I'm saying theoretically. If I did have one, um, they operate so fluidly and similarly between each other and from year to year, like uh, a Galaxy, you know, S10 is going to perform and, and feel very similar when it launched to the Galaxy S21 and S22 or whatever they decide to call it in the future. So it's it's something, it's things like that that kind of really annoy me about how Google likes to iterate on their devices because it's not growing on, some, on a foundation that's built. It's essentially knocking down that foundation and building up again. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what we kind of see from Android 12 
uh, in Google I.O. And it's one of the main reasons why I've never really, I haven't really gotten back into Google devices since um, the kind of rapid change that Google's been going through just because of that cohesiveness. But um, I do think we will see some really cool stuff from Google I.O. Um, a lot of new things um, that I think are going to surprise a, a few people, kind of like uh, Project Duplex, Duplex did back in the day with you know, Google Assistant taking calls for you and being able to make appointments for you at a hairdresser and stuff like that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw some new software features like that. That's where Google's specialty really shines, is in great new software. Um, maybe some advancements to Assistant, I think is going to be, you know, it's been a huge focus in the past. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a focus in this year as well. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see products like the 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 5A, the Pixel 5A, or the Pixel 6, or the Pixel Watch. But um, we will see a beta for Android 12, so we'll kind of get a glimpse of what the new features are going to look like and what their focus is going to be on with the new design language. There's rumors that, you know, uh, Android is going to get a little bit of a, of a redesign, um, a small redesign, not as big as, like, uh, uh, Ice Cream Sandwich or, or Oreo back in the day. Uh, but a little bit of a redesign, a little bit of a tweak to make it look a little bit more modern. So yeah, I think that's going to be the focus. It's going to be on Android 12. It's going to be getting that beta out to developers so they can take advantage of the new features and not so much on the hardware, which is a little bit of a shame because I think it would be exciting to see those new Pixel phones in person because I personally, I think they look fantastic. Um, but how about you? How do you feel about the Pixel phones? Do you think they look as good as I do or, or are you like more interested in the older designs of like the 4a and the 5 the pixel 6 yeah i think they look good i think they look very good i like the design of them but i also like the design of the you know the 4a the 5 i like just plain phones mm -hmm. right i like just plain black phones um i guess kind of boring of me but i i don't hate the design of the pixel 6 it's like you said it looks very premium the camera bump on the back i've never been a big fan of camera bumps yeah. so the fact that they have it spread across the entire back of the phone a little bit uh i don't know a little bit jarring to me yeah and i'm also trying to figure out okay how does a case fit on that thing like do you have a, a case for the top part of like top third of your phone and then a separate case for the bottom does it incorporate the camera bump? How thick is the camera bump? Is like it going to be sticking out past my case? Do I need an extra large case now because of it? Uh, there's a lot of questions, but I mean, these are just renders from a leaker, so we don't know anything, right? But uh, I like the design of the new phones. I like the design of the old phones. Yeah. And like you said, I don't see them doing both at the same time. I'm excited for a Pixel 5a. You know, if it comes in at a similar price to the Pixel 4a, I could see myself upgrading to the Pixel 5a because it's a mid-range phone, right? But I don't see them doing a Pixel 5a and then completely changing their design language like two months later for the Pixel 6. So it's kind of, you know, what's going on? What's, what's actually going to happen? Now, the Pixel 5a, sorry, the Pixel 4a launched in August last year. There, A lot of people, I think including Google, are saying that the Pixel 5a is going to come around the, around the same time it did last year. So 
you know, it seems like, I don't know, it seems like the A in 5A stands for August. <laughs> Maybe we'll get the Pixel Buds A series at that time too. And a lot of the renders for the Pixel 6 we've been, we've been seeing kind of match the design design language, the design colors of the Pixel Watch that's also been leaked. Yeah. So I could see those coming in their own separate event. You know, I don't think they're going to do the Apple thing and release it all in one event. But I really, I'm kind of confused by which direction they're going to go, right? And how they're going to do this. One thing I do think, though, is we've spoke about this on previous podcasts, right? So Google I.O. is a lot about their their software, their development, new features that they've developed, like you said. There have been a lot of talks about this, you know, new Google Whitechapel chip, mm-hmm. right? This new GS101 chip that Google has been working on to power their Google devices. I could see them revealing something about this chip, revealing some sort of benchmarks or something about its capability or something about how this new chip that they've developed is making all kinds of things possible that they couldn't do before because they were held back by Snapdragon, right? I could see that conversation being started at Google I.O. this week. And I guess if I'm extrapolating, you know, one thing that makes a lot of sense is, okay, let's say you have the 5A come out and it's using a Snapdragon. It's, you know, more budget friendly, slightly modified, modified version of the Pixel 5. But then later on in the year, you have the new Pixel 6 with a new design language. This is the first phone using Google's new chip, so they want to make it premium. Yeah. Right? That makes more sense to me. They're not just going to, okay, stick this brand new amazing chip that they're you know going to say is brand new and amazing in a regular 5A or a regular 6A or a regular 6. They want to make a big statement with their first house house made chip or their first in-house chip. So, I mean, if I look at it that way, the the premium look of the Pixel 6 and you know, especially putting that Pro tag on it instead of the XL, that makes a lot of sense to me. But we're just going to have to see, okay, does is the price going to be premium? I mean, probably. And I guess what is there gonna, what's going to be their justification for? That's what that's really what I'm waiting to see, right? Is it going to be okay? This chip is so advanced and so powerful, and we put this you know these amazing you know build quality techniques in place, and that's why we have to charge you a thousand dollars just like Apple and Samsung do. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think you're one hundred percent right. Of like where this is going for Google, one I agree with you. A little confusing with you know the kind of messaging around oh you know the design language of the older one the design language of the new ones but that being said i wouldn't be surprised if google was confused as well they're the same company that had pixel 4a leaked for almost like a year before it was announced and then a few months later they announced a pixel 5 so it's it's like and a pixel 4a 5g on the same day so it's yeah. It's one of those things where definitely they don't have the Apple kind of cohesiveness of launching products and, and, you know, naming conventions and all that down to a T. They're still working on that. But I would imagine this is probably 
their way of trying to get closer to Apple, you know, taking their naming scheme with the pro moniker. And what is going to happen with this Whitechapel, Whitechapel chip? I think it's going to be, and I have nothing to back this up, but at the end of the day, Pixel phones are about cameras. And if anyone saw like these renders of the leaked devices of the leaked Pixel 6, this, they're taking a really uh, serious uh, look at the multicam setup. They're going to have multiple cameras, two on the, on the smaller version and then three on the Pro. I wouldn't be surprised if the way they advertise these new chips is, you know, tight integration with the cameras and tight integration with Google Assistant. I think those are the two things in terms of software that Google has really hit out of the park with Pixel. Um, it's their software related to their cameras and their software related to Google Assistant. Really, there's the companies have been playing catch up with them for years on trying to get the same amount of performance out of their cameras and out of you know things like Bixby or even Siri not being able to reach the level of Assistant. So I think that's probably going to be the place where they, they focus and say, this is why you're going to want this chip. We have specific cores for processing your images and your video. We're going to have great video on Pixel now. And Assistant is going to be faster and more accurate. And, you know, I think that's going to be where they focus because that can be a huge differentiating factor of hitting on Pixel's strengths and also showing a value as to why a premium Google phone is different than a premium Apple phone or a premium Samsung phone. That being said, that is a logical direction for Google to go. Google is not always logical. <laughs> so I think it's just going to be a wait and see kind of approach. Yeah. Definitely a wait and see kind of approach. Any uh, closing statements for the episode? Uh, no, just uh, if anyone's interested, uh, Google I.O. is taking place from Tuesday the 18th, 18th to Thursday. Um, so if you want to check it out, uh, Thursday the 20th, uh, the Google I.O. is going to be happening over that time frame. And the expectations is that the bigger announcements are going to be on the 18th. Um, and then the more developer-focused announcements are going to be later on in the week. Yeah, everyone can get a jump start on the next podcast episode and do your own research. <laughs> be, uh, yeah, having a quiz in class, so make sure you guys come prepared. It's homework. Yeah. <laughs> uh, take it easy, everyone, in podcast land. Catch you in the next episode.